What role does community play in childbirth? The health providers um, should be able to value and acknowledge that those things are important to the women in in one of the most vulnerable times of their lives. It's um, really not rocket science. Carol Williams is my guest. She's an Aboriginal woman with family connections to the Palawa and Western Arundin nations. And she's an experienced Indigenous policy advisor and midwife who champions the practice of birthing on country. So we see, or I see, birthing on country as one way that we can ensure that our babies are being born connected, belonging and strong in their identities. This is Birthing and Justice with Ruth D'Souza. In this series, I'm having conversations about birth, racism and cultural safety with some of the leaders in maternal health. I started my professional life as a nurse in Aotearoa, but my family go back to Goa and I was born in East Africa, in Tanzania. I grew up in Kenya and now I'm in Australia, a migrant myself and an uninvited guest living on unceded Bunwarung country. And it's from this position a migrant, a researcher, a nurse and an educator that I start the conversation with Carol Williams about how her cultural traditions rub up against Western medicine and midwifery. Carol Williams, thank you for being here. Thank you, Ruth. Um, Carol, I'm asking a question of all of my guests, which is why do you care about birth and maternity? I, d- I, don't, I don't think that's an easy question. I, I just remember that I've, I always had a fascination or oh, I was just amazed by pregnancy and birth and, and everything around it. I think I said I would either have a baby or be a midwife and having a baby came first. Um, but, you know, I do care because I've seen um, the difference it makes when you have a caring, um, supportive midwife who advocates for your, for your needs. I mean, when you think about hospitals in previously, there were places where Aboriginal babies were taken and then they, they were removed. And old people or sick people wouldn't go to the hospitals because you go to a hospital and you die or you never come home. Um, so hospitals and other systems are, are places, you know, so the, the justice system, education systems, um, where there's a lot of mistrust and uh, fear. So I want to I want to be the sort of midwife who can address those fears and help the women feel supported and comfortable and um, make sure that they get the care that they need so that they do have a joyous wherever possible um, birth and experience. I worked on a postnatal ward because I was thinking about becoming a midwife. Uh, this is in the 90s. And I was so devastated by what I saw on postnatal wards. I'd been working in mental health as a community mental health nurse. And I kind of thought, oh, hooray, I'm going to be part of this beautiful moment in, in the life of a family. And what I saw instead was this factory production, a lot of uh, cultural unsafety, which, which has meant that my life's work for the last 20 years has been about cultural safety and maternity because I was so disheartened, I was so saddened at the kind of violences that I saw in, in hospitals and then as soon as I had a chance I was involved in setting up a maternal mental health service in Auckland 
And what was really lovely about doing that work is I felt in a far better position to support women and their families in that role than I did in hospitals where it felt like uh, it was all about throughput. And I kind of did not want to be a part of this kind of brutalizing machine among people who supposedly were caring. And I Mm. saw no evidence of that care. Yeah, you articulate that very well. So so I I left, I I did my grad year and and I left for the same reasons. Um, I felt I could do more as an advocate on, you know, in policy and at Katsunam than I could in the system. I found that being the only, well, in the, I was on birthing and I was the only Aboriginal midwife. The fact that I'd had nearly 30 years experience in the public service and I was quite senior when I left, I was confident and would lead a lot of the work and education around Uh, issues for Aboriginal staff. When I started in the hospital, as a graduate midwife, I was very vulnerable. Um, I was treated, you know, like I was stupid because I'm a grad midwife. Um, I'm new, so I don't know anything. I found it very hard to stand up to um, the bullying and the racism that I saw and to the factory I think where you've got a what I call a critical mass of people, um, then we can support each other and um, feel more included and valued in the workplace. But when you're one person um, and they haven't had anybody like you there before and they, um, they were very dismissive, um, uncaring and it was just a really, really difficult place to be. So yes, I completely uh, empathise with what you're talking about, Ruth, in your experience in postnatal ward. Um, so I was in birthing, but I did see it across across all areas. And a lack of um, will or desire to improve. Um, people were comfortable. Um, you've said before that inequality starts early and that pregnancy, birth and early childhood are critical periods for mothers and babies. From your experience, what are the challenges for Indigenous people birthing in Australia? Yeah, where do I begin? Goodness me. We know that um, there's a disproportionate burden of adverse perinatal outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and babies compared to other women. And, you know, we're still feeling the effects of colonisation and the legacy of the practice of removing babies from their families. For, you know, Aboriginal women have been birthing in their communities for millennia and it was only when, with the... uh, with colonisation, that women decided to be removed from communities to be birthing in health centres and hospitals. Um, and the, those systems are inflexible. They require women to adhere to the system's expectations about what it thinks is good for women. Um, it doesn't take account of our worldviews and our cultural values and... Um, the fact that our kinship systems and family obligations take priority over everything else. And because of this history of um, 
racism and negative experiences, um, culturally inappropriate services, culturally unsafe care. A lot of women are reluctant to access um, antenatal care early in their pregnancy. Um, there's talk around women having Aboriginal women having insufficient or late antenatal care, and it's off, the, the reasons often cited for that are because of the lack of available or appropriate services, lack of Aboriginal health professionals, um, poor communication, lack of childcare and transport, and those sorts of things. But there doesn't seem to be much focus on women's lack of trust in the health services because of those negative experiences. Absolutely. And one of the things that I'm conscious of is um, there's this uh, lack of trust, like you say, in the health system. But then even when Aboriginal women do things the right way, they're dismissed and um, we, we are letting down Aboriginal women and their families. We're letting them down badly in this country and so what I'm wondering is how you see birthing on country what it means for for women living both in urban centres and those who return to are from country and community you know why are you so passionate about birthing on country what what does it bring women and their families yeah first I think oh um I have a belief that the you know the notion or the concept's not really well understood. I think there's a view that birthing on country is um, you know out on in the bush under a tree having a baby, but it, but it's not. Um, so I might explain that its genesis really was in rural and remote areas where women were being removed from communities to go to a major centre to have their babies, and they were being removed you know four weeks before their due date, and they were on their own and didn't know anybody, very often couldn't speak the language, English, let alone um, understand medical and or medical legal terms. But birthing on country is described as a metaphor for the best start in life for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander babies and their families, uh, which provides an appropriate transition to motherhood and to parenting and an integrated, holistic and culturally appropriate model of care. If you take that definition or that explanation, birthing on country models of care can be incorporated in any setting, anywhere. If you say birthing with country, that means that the women can bring in their family supports. They can bring in um, earth or, or plants or ochre or whatever is important to them at the time of that birth. The health providers um, should be able to value and acknowledge that those things are important to the women in, in one of the most vulnerable times of their lives. It's um, really not rocket science. Absolutely. And what I love about what you're saying is that it, it doesn't just matter about physiological care, but this cultural care and this connection to country is so fundamental to the experience of birth and so necessary. And I'm kind of wondering you know, how um, cultural safety comes into this because you're a very strong advocate for including it in midwifery practice. Well, I'd have to say not, not very well. Um, I don't think this is another concept that I don't think there's a really good understanding of um, because 
I often find that people are using it interchangeably with cultural awareness, cultural respect, cultural competency and all of those sorts of things. So um, sometimes I'll describe it as a, as the final stop on a continuum of care. So if you if the beginning of the continuum continuum is cultural awareness and the and the ultimate is cultural safety um, with all of those other things in between. Um, and cultural safety, so if you think about cultural awareness, it's about people learning about us. It, um, it others us uh, and it often risks people uh, seeing us as homogenous peoples. Um, so, so they're learning about us. But cultural safety is about uh, midwives learning about themselves. So they're, they're um, asked to suspend their own views and values in favour of respecting our worldviews cultural practices and putting our preferences and needs first and and so we're asking them to understand or we're demanding even them to understand that their assumptions and worldviews practices and beliefs um, are, that they may in fact be harmful when they're when they're judging us or the Aboriginal women that they're caring for and I use that word loosely um, by their own worldviews and values. Yeah. So prior to becoming a midwife, you were telling us that you'd, you'd become a mother and you'd also worked in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander policy. Has that shaped how you think about midwifery and about institutions and practices? Uh, yeah, in many, in many respects it has. It's given me um, the background and the confidence to... Um, to understand not just about midwifery but the whole um, social and well-being um, environment that we're in, you know, the social determinants of health, socioeconomic factors, um, racism, um, which is, of course, a double burden. Um, I, de I didn't work in health when I was in the public service. I was largely in education um, and I think I learned a lot about teachable moments and I take every opportunity I can in the midwifery space to, uh, to educate um, in, a, in a way that's, well, I try not to be confronting, but sometimes it's, you know, it's hard. Um, when I was a student, uh, I was really upset by an episode a racist episode and, and I went to the midwifery unit manager and tried to explain what had happened and, and how just how awful it was and she just wanted to tell me everything she knew about Aboriginal people and then she dismissed my complaint saying that, well, you never know, that midwife might have been raped by an Aboriginal man once. So that justifies her, um, her response, you know. This was in the 2013 or 14 or something. Oh, my goodness. Well, I know there are lots and lots of other examples where we've our people have been, you know, not believed. Yeah, too many. And I'm kind of wondering what gives you hope, what keeps you going in this very overwhelming context? You know, I've, I've moved here from Aotearoa to Australia. I'm still learning very much about 
this environment that we're in. But um, there's a heavy load that I think Aboriginal women particularly carry, you know, and you carry this load. And I'm kind of um, one of the one of the terms that I find useful in health is the idea of weathering, which is all the microaggressions, all the systemic injustices, they have a weathering effect on the body. You know, it's like rain on a car or salt water on the car. It wears it away, you know. Mm. How do you keep going in your work? Well, it's like the feminist mantra, isn't it? The personal is political um, in some ways. And, you know, I... My, um, when I look at my family and our, and our experiences and my husband's family, so my husband, both his parents were removed. Um, my husband was removed when his mother was in a hospital having a, a baby. Um, and some of our um, nieces' children have been removed at birth. And I see all of that and, and my daughter sees that and she says, well, I don't, I'm not going to have any children because they're just going to be taken away. We don't want that to keep happening to our people. But on the other hand, we know that birthing on country models of care work. We've seen there's international evidence. Um, if you look at the model in Nunavut, which started in about 1998, um, it, it's about eight hours plane trip from any hospital and what they saw was that when the women were being removed and the babies were being born away from country there was this disconnect and you know and that's the same as what's happening here there's all of this community dysfunction gender-based violence and all of that stuff and they were and they were seeing that that was a direct result of children being born off country and the families not being able to thrive in their, in their own environment. So they set about establishing their own midwifery um, service in these communities. So they've, and they choose the women who will become midwives because of their character. Um, and they, that has been so successful. Um, the, 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 the perinatal deaths are far fewer than what ours are, Aboriginal babies, and our, our babies are born in hospitals. Um, their caesarean rate is less than 2%. And in Australia, it's you know up around 35%. And they report that their communities are back together, you know. Um, and so then we see in Australia the birthing in our community model in Brisbane. It's been going since about 2013, but it's a continuity um, model of care at the Mater Hospital. And the women have their own midwives. That's continuity of care. It's flexible. It, it's culturally appropriate and safe. And they've had a 50% reduction in preterm births. They've had um, a reduction in caesarean deliveries. Um, fewer babies being admitted to NICU and um, special care nursery. Women are attending more appointments. And they're more likely to be breastfeeding on discharge, um, so these are these are really extraordinary outcomes, and this is only in the last uh, twelve months or so that these results are coming out. So, so, um, so I keep going, keep promoting this because we know that it works, and we know how in how important it is. So we see, or I see, birthing on country as one way that we can ensure that our babies are being born connected 
belonging and strong in their identities. And and I hope that, you know, not too far into the distant future, all of our babies will be born in places and among people who respect and value their cultural identities, uh, ensuring that they do have the best start to life. I'm kind of wondering if we can shift focus for a second, because you've also been involved in another kind of vision that I think would be really of a, of interest to people who are listening, and that that is you've been part of a team responsible for coordinating uh, Indigenous dialogues around Australia that have culminated in the 2017 National Constitutional Convention at Uluru from which the Uluru Statement from the Heart was issued. Carol, can you tell us how this um, beautiful work around the Uluru Statement from the Heart, how it links to your other work on birthing on country and what you think it offers future generations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? How I came to do that work was through my connections with former colleagues in the Australian Public Service. It, it was a really interesting time. Again, there was some misunderstandings around the process. People were seeing it um, as just constitutional recognition, which it wasn't. It was about reform of the constitution, not just a, you know a preamble. So these um, these dialogues or this process was set up by the Indigenous Steering Committee of the Referendum Council, and overwhelmingly. People said, we don't just want this poetry in front of the Constitution. We want meaningful reform. Um, We want this voice to Parliament so that we can have a say on policies and legislation that impact our lives. We're um, asking or demanding that our worldviews and our values and our needs and our experiences um, are valued and acknowledged and and addressed and you know there's been lots lots of different inquiries and reports over the years that haven't haven't achieved much and we're still seeing the same level of um, suicides early deaths preventable deaths um, poor housing you know all, all of those social determinants and if you know we've got a voice to parliament and at last our voices are being heard, then surely that's going to translate to our future generations being heard, uh, feeling like they belong and being connected and valued. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And in in terms of future thinking as well, I'd, I'd love your thoughts about the future of the midwifery profession in Australia. What, what are your hopes for it? Um, well, my first thoughts around that is increasing the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander midwives. Um, if you think um, we're about 3%, well, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people are about 3% of the Australian population. Our birth rate is about 5%, but our midwifery workforce is about 1%. Yeah, so when, and not all of our midwives, like myself, I'm not doing any or much clinical work at the moment and many others are also working in policy and advocacy spaces rather than in in the clinical environment. So when you consider our birth rate, um, 
wouldn't it be great if every Aboriginal woman or every woman having an Aboriginal baby had an Aboriginal midwife? But we'd also, we also need midwives who understand the concept of cultural safety and who practice in a culturally yes, safe way. Absolutely. Carol, I've loved having you on the show. Thanks for sharing so much of your knowledge and expertise and your deep, deep, deep commitment to communities uh, here in Australia. I've really appreciated the time you've taken to, to speak with us and I wish you all the best with the work that you're continuing to do. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Ruth. Thanks, Carol. Thanks for listening to Birthing and Justice with Ruth D'Souza. This podcast is written and hosted by me, Ruth D'Souza, recorded at Windmill Studios in Melbourne on the traditional lands of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Sound design and mix by Regan McKinnon, artwork by Atong Atom, design by Ethan Stang, title track by Raquel Solier, and produced and edited by Pippi Films.